0: Section 6 of Select Sermons of Jonathan Edwards This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S. M. Hammond. Select Sermons of Jonathan Edwards. Section 6. The Agony. Part 2 another circumstance of christ's agony that shows the strength of his love is the ungrateful carriage of his disciples at that time Christ's disciples were among those for whom he endured this agony, and among those for whom he was going to endure those last sufferings, of which he now had such dreadful apprehensions. Yet Christ had already given them an interest in the benefits of those sufferings. Their sins had already been forgiven them through that blood that he was going to shed, and they had been infinite gainers already by that dying pity and love which he had to them, and had through his sufferings been distinguished from all the world besides Besides Christ had put greater honor upon them than any other, by making them his disciples, in a more honorable sense than he had done any other. And yet now, when he had that dreadful cup set before him which he was going to drink for them, and was in such an agony at the sight of it, he saw no return on their part but indifference and ingratitude. When he only desired them to watch with him, that he might be comforted in their company, now at this sorrowful moment they fell asleep and showed that they had not concern enough about it to induce them to keep awake with him even for one hour, though he desired it of them once and again. But yet this ungrateful treatment of theirs, for whom he was to drink the cup of wrath which God had set before him, did not discourage him from taking it and drinking it for them. His love held out to them, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He did not say within himself, when this cup of trembling was before him, Why should I endure so much for those that are so ungrateful? Why should I here wrestle with the expectation of the terrible wrath of God to be borne by me to-morrow, for them that in the meantime have not so much concern for me as to keep awake with me, when I desired of them even for one hour? But on the contrary, with tender and fatherly compassions, he excuses this ingratitude of his disciples and says Matthew chapter 26 verse 41 Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak and went and was apprehended and mocked and scourged and crucified and poured out his soul unto death under the heavy weight of God's dreadful wrath on the cross for them third inference from what has been said we may learn the wonderfulness of christ's submission to the will of god christ as he was a divine person was the absolute sovereign of heaven and earth but yet he was the most wonderful instance of submission to god's sovereignty that ever was when he had such a view of the terribleness of his last sufferings and prayed if it were possible that the cup might pass from him that is if there was not an absolute necessity of it in order to the salvation of sinners yet it was with a perfect submission to the will of god he adds nevertheless not my will but thine be done He chose rather that the inclination of his human nature, which so much dreaded such exquisite torments, should be crossed, than that God's will should not take place. He delighted in the thought of God's will being done, and when he went and prayed the second time, he had nothing else to say but, O my Father, if this cup may not pass from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And so the third time. What are such trials of submission as any of us sometimes have in the afflictions that we suffer in comparison of this? If God does but in His providence signify it to be His will that we should part with a child, how hardly are we brought to yield to it, how ready to be unsubmissive and froward! Or if God lays His hand upon us in some acute pain of body, how ready are we to be discontented and impatient? When the innocent Son of God, who deserved no suffering, could quietly submit to sufferings inconceivably great and say it over and over, God's will be done when he was brought and set before that dreadful furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast in order that he might look into it and have a full view of its fierceness when his flesh shrunk at it and his nature was in such a conflict that his body was all covered with a sweat of blood falling in great drops to the ground yet his soul quietly yielded that the will of god should be done rather than the will or inclination of his human nature fourth inference what has been said on this subject also shows us the glory of christ's obedience christ was subject to the moral law as adam was and he was also subject to the ceremonial and judicial laws of moses but the principal command that he had received of the father was that he should lay down his life that he should voluntarily yield up himself to those terrible sufferings on the cross To do this was his principal errand into the world and doubtless the principal command that he received was about that which was the principal errand on which he was sent the father when he sent him into the world sent him with commands concerning what he should do in the world and his chief command of all was about that which was the errand he was chiefly sent upon which was to lay down his life and therefore this command was the principal trial of his obedience it was the greatest trial of his obedience because it was by far the most difficult command all the rest were easy in comparison of this and the main trial that christ had whether he would obey this command was in the time of his agony for that was within an hour before he was apprehended in order to his sufferings when he must either yield himself up to them or fly from them And then it was the first time that Christ had a full view of the difficulty of this command, which appeared so great as to cause that bloody sweat. Then was the conflict of weak human nature with the difficulty, then was the sore struggles and wrestling with the heavy trial he had, and then Christ got the victory over the temptation from the dread of his human nature. His obedience held out through the conflict then we may suppose that satan was especially let loose to set in with the natural dread that the human nature had of such torments and to strive to his utmost to dissuade christ from going on to drink the bitter cup for about that time towards the close of christ's life was he especially delivered up into the hands of satan to be tempted of him more than he was immediately after his baptism for christ says speaking of that time luke chapter twenty two verse fifty three when i was daily with you in the temple ye stretched forth no hands against me but this is your hour and the power of darkness so that christ in the time of his agony was wrestling not only with overwhelming views of his last sufferings but he also wrestled in that bloody sweat with principalities and powers he contended at that time with the great leviathan that labored to his utmost to tempt him to disobedience So that then Christ had temptations every way to draw him off from obedience to God. He had temptations from his feeble human nature, that exceedingly dreaded such torments. And he had temptations from men, who were his enemies. And he had temptations from the ungrateful carriage of his own disciples. And he had temptations from the devil. He had also an overwhelming trial from the manifestation of God's own wrath, when, in the words of Isaiah, it pleased the Lord to bruise him and put him to grief. But yet he failed not, but got the victory over all, and performed that great act of obedience at that time to that same God that hid himself from him, and was showing his wrath to him for men's sins, which he must presently suffer. Nothing could move him away from his steadfast obedience to God but he persisted in saying, Thy will be done, expressing not only his submission, but his obedience, not only his compliance with the disposing will of God, but also with his preceptive will. God had given him this cup to drink, and had commanded him to drink it, and that was reason enough with him to drink it. Hence he says, at the conclusion of his agony, when Judas came with his band, the cup which my Father giveth me to drink, shall I not drink it? John chapter 18, verse 11. Christ at the time of his agony had an inconceivably greater trial of obedience than any man or any angel ever had. How much was this trial of the obedience of the second Adam beyond the trial of the obedience of the first Adam? How light was our first Father's temptation in comparison of this? and yet our first surety failed and our second failed not but obtained a glorious victory and went and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross thus wonderful and glorious was the obedience of christ by which he wrought out righteousness for believers and which obedience is imputed to them no wonder that it is a sweet penalty sown and that God stands ready to bestow heaven as its reward on all that believe on him five what has been said shows us the sottishness of secure sinners in being so fearless of the wrath of God if the wrath of god was so dreadful that when christ only expected it his human nature was nearly overwhelmed with the fear of it and his soul was amazed and his body all over in a bloody sweat then how sottish are sinners who are under the threatening of the same wrath of god and are condemned to it and are every moment exposed to it and yet instead of manifesting intense apprehension are quiet and easy and unconcerned instead of being sorrowful and very heavy go about with a light and careless heart instead of crying out in bitter agony are often gay and cheerful and eat and drink and sleep quietly and go on in sin provoking the wrath of god more and more without any great matter of concern how stupid and sottish are such persons let such senseless sinners consider that that misery, of which they are in danger from the wrath of God, is infinitely more terrible than that, the fear of which occasion in Christ his agony and bloody sweat. It is more terrible both as it differs both in its nature and degree, and also as it differs in its duration. It is more terrible in its nature and degree christ suffered that which as it upheld the honour of the divine law was fully equivalent to the misery of the damned and in some respects it was the same suffering for it was the wrath of the same god but yet in other respects it vastly differed the difference does not arise from the difference in the wrath poured out on one and the other for it is the same wrath but from the difference of the subject which may be best illustrated from Christ's own comparison Luke chapter 23 verse 31 for if they do these things in a green tree what shall be done in the dry Here he calls himself the green tree, and wicked men the dry, intimating that the misery that will come on wicked men will be far more dreadful than those sufferings which came on him. And the difference arises from the different nature of the subject. The green tree and the dry are both cast into the fire, but the flames seize and kindle on the dry tree much more fiercely than on the green. The sufferings that Christ endured differ from the misery of the wicked in hell in nature and degree in the following respects. 1. Christ felt not the gnawings of a guilty condemning conscience. 2. He felt no torment from the reigning of inward corruptions and lusts as the damned do. The wicked in hell are their own tormentors, their lusts are their tormentors, and being without restraint for there is no restraining grace in hell, their lusts will rage like raging flames in their hearts. They shall be tormented with the unrestrained violence of a spirit of envy and malice against God, and against the angels and saints in heaven, and against one another. Now Christ suffered nothing of this. 3. Christ had not to consider that God hated him. The wicked in hell have this to make their misery perfect. They know that God perfectly hates them without the least pity or regard to them, which will fill their souls with inexpressible misery. But it was not so with Christ. God withdrew his comfortable presence from Christ, and hid his face from him, and so poured out his wrath upon him, as made him feel its terrible effects on his soul, but yet he knew at the same time that God did not hate him, but infinitely loved him he cried out of god's forsaken him but yet at the same time calls him my god my god knowing that he was his god still though he had forsaken him but the wicked in hell will know that he is not their god but their judge and irreconcilable enemy for christ did not suffer despair as the wicked do in hell He knew that there would be an end to his suffering in a few hours, and that after that he should enter into eternal glory. But it will be far otherwise with you that are impenitent. If you die in your present condition, you will be in perfect despair. On these accounts, the misery of the wicked in hell will be immensely more dreadful in nature and degree than those sufferings with the fears of which Christ's soul was so much overwhelmed. 2 it will infinitely differ in duration christ's sufferings lasted but a few hours and there was an eternal end to them and eternal glory succeeded but you that are a secure senseless sinner are every day exposed to be cast into everlasting misery a fire that never shall be quenched if then the son of god was in such amazement in the expectation of what he was to suffer for a few hours how sottish are you who are continually exposed to sufferings immensely more dreadful in nature and degree and that are to be without any end but which must be endured without any rest day or night for ever and ever If you had a full sense of the greatness of that misery to which you are exposed, and how dreadful your present condition is on that account, it would this moment put you into as dreadful an agony as that which Christ underwent. Yea, if your nature could endure it, one much more dreadful, we should now see you fall down in a bloody sweat, wallowing in your gore and crying out in terrible amazement. Having thus endeavoured to explain and illustrate the former of the two propositions mentioned in the commencement of this discourse, I shall now proceed to show, too, that the soul of Christ in his agony in the garden was in a great and earnest strife and conflict in his prayer to God. The labour and striving of Christ's soul in prayer was a part of his agony, and was, without doubt, a part of what is intended in the text when it is said that christ was in an agony for as we have shown the word is especially used in scripture in other places for striving or wrestling with god in prayer from this fact and from the evangelist mentioning his being in agony and his praying earnestly in the same sentence we may well understand him as mentioning his striving in prayer as part of his agony the words of the text seem to hold forth as much as that christ was in an agony in prayer being in an agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground this language seems to imply thus much that the labour and earnestness of christ's soul was so great in his wrestling with god in prayer that he was in a mere agony and all over in a sweat of blood what i propose now in this second proposition is by the help of god to explain this part of christ's agony which consisted in the agonizing and wrestling of his soul in prayer which is the more worthy of a particular inquiry being that which probably is but little understood though as may appear in the sequel the right understanding of it is of great use and consequence in divinity it is not as i conceive ordinarily well understood what is meant when it is said in the text that christ prayed more earnestly or what was the thing that he wrestled with god for or what was the subject-matter of this earnest prayer or what was in the reason of his being so very earnest in prayer at this time and therefore to set this whole matter in a clear light i would particularly inquire one of what nature this prayer was two what was the subject matter of this earnest prayer of christ to the father three in what capacity christ offered up this prayer to god four why he was so earnest in his prayer five what was the success of this his earnest wrestling with god in prayer and then make some improvement 1. Of what nature this prayer of Christ was. Addresses that are made to God may be of various kinds. Some are confessions on the part of the individual, or expressions of his sense of his own unworthiness before God, and are thus penitential addresses to God. Others are doxologies, or prayers intended to express the sense which the person has of God's greatness and glory. Such are many of the Psalms of David. Others are gratulatory addresses or expressions of thanksgiving and praise for mercies received others are submissive addresses or expressions of submission and resignation to the will of god whereby he that addresses the majesty of heaven expresses the compliance of his will with the sovereign will of god saying thy will o lord be done as david second samuel chapter fifteen verse twenty six but if he thus say i have no delight in thee behold, here am I, let him do to me as seemeth good unto him. Others are petitory or supplicatory, whereby the person that prays begs of God and cries to him for some favor desired of him. Hence the inquiry is, of which of these kinds was the prayer of Christ that we read of in the text? Answer. It was chiefly supplicatory. It was not penitential or confessional, for christ had no sin or unworthiness to confess nor was it a doxology or a thanksgiving or merely an expression of submission for none of these agree with what is said in the text viz that he prayed more earnestly when anyone is said to pray earnestly, it implies an earnest request for some benefit or favor desired, and not merely a confession or submission or gratulation. So what the Apostle says of this prayer in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, quote, Who, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears, unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, shows that it was... Petitory, or an earnest supplication for some desired benefit. They are not confessions or doxologies or thanksgivings, or resignations that are called supplications and strong signs, but petitions for some benefit earnestly desired, and having thus resolved the first inquiry, and shown that this earnest prayer of Christ was of the nature of a supplication for some benefit or favor which Christ earnestly desired, I come to inquire two. What was the subject matter of this supplication, or what favor and benefit that was for which Christ so earnestly supplicated in this prayer, of which we have an account in the text? Now the words of the text are not express on this matter. It is said that Christ, quote, being in an agony, prayed more earnestly, end quote. But yet it is not said what he prayed so earnestly for and here is the greatest difficulty attending this account even what that was which christ so earnestly desired for which he so wrestled with god at that time and though we are not expressly told in the text yet the scriptures have not left us without sufficient light in this matter and the more effectually to avoid mistakes i would answer one negatively the thing that christ so earnestly prayed for at this time was not that the bitter cup which he had to drink might pass from him Christ had before prayed for this, as in the next verse, but one before the text, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It is after this that we have an account that Christ, being in an agony, prayed more earnestly. But we are not to understand that he prayed more earnestly than he had done before, that the cup might pass from him, that this was not the thing that, he so earnestly prayed for in this second prayer the following things seem to prove one the second prayer was after the angel had appeared to him from heaven strengthening him the more cheerfully to take the cup and drink it the evangelists inform us that when christ came into the garden he began to be sorrowful and very heavy and that he said his soul was exceeding sorrowful even unto death and that then he went and prayed to god that if it were possible the cup might pass from him luke says in the forty first and forty second verses that being withdrawn from his disciples about a stone's cast he kneeled down and prayed saying father if thou be willing remove this cup from me nevertheless not my will but thine be done and then after this it is said in the next verse that there appeared an angel from heaven unto him strengthening him now this can be understood no otherwise than that the angel appeared to him strengthening him and encouraging him to go through his great and difficult work to take the cup and drink it accordingly we must suppose that now christ was more strengthened and encouraged to go through with his sufferings and therefore we cannot suppose that after this he would pray more earnestly than before to be delivered from his sufferings and of course that it was something else that christ more earnestly prayed for after that strengthening of the angel and not that the cup might pass from him though christ seems to have a greater sight of his sufferings given him after the strengthening of the angel than before that caused such an agony yet he was more strengthened to fit him for a greater sight of them he had greater strength and courage to grapple with these awful apprehensions than before his strength to bear sufferings is increased with the sense of his sufferings 2. Christ, before his second prayer, had had an intimation from the Father that it was not his will that the cup should pass from him. The angels coming from heaven to strengthen him must be so understood. Christ first prays that, if it may be the will of the Father, the cup might pass, but not if it was not his will, and then God immediately upon this sends an angel to strengthen and encourage him to take the cup which was a plain intimation to christ that it was the father's will that he should take it and that it should not pass from him and so christ received it as appears from the account which matthew gives of this second prayer matthew chapter twenty six verse forty two he went away again the second time and prayed saying o my father if this cup may not pass away from me except i drink it thy will be done He speaks as one that now had had an intimation, since he prayed before, that it was not the will of God. And Luke tells us, viz., by God sending an angel. Matthew informs us, as Luke does, that in his first prayer he prayed that, if it were possible, the cup might pass from him. But then God sends an angel to signify that it was not his will, and to encourage him to take it and then christ having received this plain intimation that it was not the will of god that the cup should pass from him yields to the message he had received and says o my father if it be so as thou hast now signified thy will be done therefore we may surely conclude that what christ prayed more earnestly for after this was not that the cup might pass from him but something else for he would not go to pray more earnestly that the cup might pass from him after god had signified that it was not his will that it should pass from him than he did before that would be blasphemous to suppose and then thirdly the language of the second prayer as recited by matthew O oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass from me except I drink it, thy will be done, shows that Christ did not then pray that the cup might pass from him. This certainly is not praying more earnestly that the cup might pass, it is rather a yielding that point, and ceasing any more to urge it, and submitting to it as a thing now determined by the will of God, made known by the angel. And, for, from the apostle's account of this prayer in the fifth chapter of hebrews the words of the apostle are these who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up his prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared the strong crying and tears of which the apostle speaks are doubtless the same that luke speaks of in the text when he says he being in an agony prayed more earnestly for this was the sharpest and most earnest crying of christ of which we have anywhere any account But according to the Apostle's account, that which Christ feared, and that for which he so strongly cried to God in this prayer, was something that he was heard in, something that God granted him his request in, and therefore it was not that the cup might pass from him. Having thus shown what it was not that Christ prayed for in this earnest prayer, I proceed to show, second, what it was that Christ so earnestly sought of God in this prayer. I answer in one word, it was that God's will might be done in what related to His sufferings. Matthew gives this express account of it in the very language of the prayer which has been recited several times already, O my Father, if this cup may not pass from me except I drink it, Thy will be done. This is a yielding and an expression of submission, but it is not merely that. Such words The will of the Lord be done, quote, as they are most commonly used, are not understood as a supplication or request, but only as an expression of submission. But the words are not always to be understood in that sense in Scripture, but sometimes are to be understood as a request. So they are to be understood in the third petition of the Lord's Prayer, quote, Thy will be done in earth as in heaven there the words are to be understood both as an expression of submission and also a request as they are explained in the assembly's catechism and so the words are to be understood here the evangelist mark says that christ went away again and spake the same words that he had done in his first prayer mark chapter fourteen verse thirty nine but then we must understand it as of the same words with the latter part of his first prayer nevertheless not my will but thine be done as Matthew's more full and particular account shows, so that the thing mentioned in the text for which Christ was wrestling with God in this prayer was that God's will might be done in what related to his sufferings. But then here another inquiry may arise, viz. what is implied in Christ's praying that God's will might be done in what related to his sufferings? To this I answer, One, This implies a request that he might be strengthened and supported, and enabled to do God's will, by going through with these sufferings. The same as when he says, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. It was the preceptive will of God that he should take that cup and drink it. It was the Father's command to him. The Father had given him the cup, and as it were set it down before him with the command that he should drink it. This was the greatest act of obedience that Christ was to perform. He prays for strength and help, that his poor feeble human nature might be supported, that he might not fail in this great trial, that he might not sink and be swallowed up, and his strength so overcome that he should not hold out, and finish the appointed obedience this was the thing that he feared of which the apostle speaks in the fifth of hebrews when he says he was heard in that he feared when he had such an extraordinary sense of the dreadfulness of his sufferings impressed on his mind The fearfulness of it amazed him. He was afraid lest his poor feeble strength should be overcome, and that he should fail in so great a trial, that he should be swallowed up by that death that he was to die, and so should not be saved from death, and therefore he offered up strong crying and tears unto him, that was able to strengthen him, and support, and save him from death, that the death he was to suffer might not overcome his love and obedience, but that he might overcome death, and so be saved from it if christ's courage had failed in the trial and he had not held out under his dying sufferings he never would have been saved from death but he would have sunk in the deep mire he never would have risen from the dead for his rising from the dead was a reward of his victory if his courage had failed and he had given up he would have remained from under the power of death and so we should all have perished we should have remained yet in our sins if he had failed all would have failed if he had not overcome in that sore conflict neither he nor we could have been freed from death we all must have perished together therefore this was the saving from death that the apostle speaks of that christ feared and prayed for with strong crying and tears his being overcome of death was the thing that he feared and so he was heard in that he feared this christ prayed that the will of god might be done in his sufferings even that he might not fail of obeying god's will in his sufferings and therefore it follows in the next verse in that passage of hebrews though he were a son yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered That it was in this respect that Christ in his agony so earnestly prayed that the will of God might be done, viz., that he might have strength to do his will, and might not sink and fail in such great sufferings, is confirmed from the scriptures of the Old Testament as particularly from the sixty-ninth Psalm. The psalmist represents Christ in that psalm as is evident from the fact that the words of that psalm are represented as Christ's words in many places of the New Testament that psalm is represented as christ's prayer to god when his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow and amazement as it was in his agony as you may see in the first and second verses save me o god for the waters are come in unto my soul i sink in deep mire where there is no standing i am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me but then the thing that is represented as being the thing that he feared was failing and being overwhelmed in this great trial verses fourteen and fifteen deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters let not the water flood overflow me neither let the deep swallow me up and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me so again in the twenty-second psalm which is also represented as the prayer of christ under his dreadful sorrow and sufferings verses nineteen twenty and twenty one but be not thou far from me o lord o my strength hast thee to help me deliver my soul from the sword my darling from the power of the dog save me from the lion's mouth It was meet and suitable that Christ, when about to engage in that terrible conflict, should thus earnestly seek help from God to enable Him to do His will. For he needed God's help, the strength of his human nature without divine help was not sufficient to carry him through. This was without doubt that in which the first Adam failed in his first trial, that when the trial came he was not sensible of his own weakness and dependence. If he had been, and had leaned on God, and cried to Him for His assistance and strength against the temptation, in all likelihood we should have remained innocent and happy creatures to this day. 2. It implies a request that God's will and purpose might be obtained in the effects and fruits of His sufferings, in the glory to His name that was His design in them, and particularly in the glory of His grace, in the eternal salvation and happiness of His elect. This is confirmed by John chapter twelve verses twenty seven and twenty eight, "Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour; but for this cause came I unto this hour, Father, glorify thy name." Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, "I have both glorified, and will glorify it again." There the first request is the same with the first request of Christ here in like trouble, quote, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, End quote. He first prays, as he does here, that he might be saved from his last sufferings, then after he was determined within himself that the will of God must be otherwise, that he should not be saved from that hour, quote, but for this cause, quote, says he, Quote, came I to this hour, end quote. and then his second request after this is quote, Father, glorify thy name, end quote. So this is doubtless the purport of the second request in his agony, when he prayed that God's will might be done. It is that God's will might be done in that glory, to his own name, that he intended in the effects and fruits of his sufferings, that seeing that was his will that he should suffer, he earnestly prays that the end of his suffering, in the glory of God and the salvation of the elect, may not fail and these things are what christ so earnestly wrestled with god for in his prayer of which we have an account in the text and we have no reason to think that they were not expressed in prayer as well as implied it is not reasonable to suppose that the evangelist in his other account of things mentions all the words of christ's prayer he only mentions the substance three in what capacity did christ offer up those earnest prayers to god in his agony to answer to this inquiry I observe that he offered them up not as a private person but as high priest. The apostle speaks of the strong crying and tears as what Christ offered up as high priest hebrews chapter five verses six and seven as he says also in another place thou art a priest for ever after the order of melchizedek who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears etc the things that christ prayed for in those strong cryings were things not of a private nature but of common concern to the whole church of which he was the high priest that the will of god should be done in his obedience unto death that his strength and courage should not fail but that he should hold out was of common concern For if he had failed, all would have failed and perished for ever. And, of course, that God's name should be glorified in the effects and fruits of his sufferings, and in the salvation and glory of all his elect, was a thing of common concern. Christ offered up these strong cries with his flesh in the same manner as the priests of old were wont to offer up prayers with their sacrifices. Christ mixed strong crying and tears with his blood, and so offered up his blood and his prayers together, that the effect and success of his blood might be obtained such earnest agonizing prayers were offered with his blood and his infinitely precious and meritorious blood was offered with his prayers four why was christ so earnest in those supplications Luke speaks of them as very earnest, the apostle speaks of them as strong crying, and his agony partly consisted in this earnestness, and the account that Luke gives us seems to imply that his bloody sweat was partly at least with the great labor and earnest sense of his soul in wrestling with God in prayer. There were three things that concurred at that time, especially to cause Christ to be thus earnest and engaged one he had then an extraordinary sense how dreadful the consequence would be if god's will should fail of being done he had then an extraordinary sense of his own last suffering under the wrath of god and if he had failed in those sufferings he knew the consequence must be dreadful he having now such an extraordinary view of the terribleness of the wrath of god his love to the elect tended to make him more than ordinarily earnest that they might be delivered from suffering that wrath to all eternity which could not have been if he had failed of doing god's will or if the will of god in the effect of a suffering had failed two no wonder that that extraordinary sense that christ then had of the costliness of the means of sinner's salvation made him very earnest for the success of those means as you have already heard three christ had an extraordinary sense of his dependence on god and his need of his help to enable him to do god's will in this great trial though he was innocent yet he needed divine help he was dependent on god as man and therefore we read that he trusted in god Matthew chapter twenty seven verse forty three He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God, end quote. And when he had such an extraordinary sight of the dreadfulness of that wrath he was to suffer, he saw how much it was beyond the strength of his human nature alone. five. What was the success of this prayer of Christ? To this I answer He obtained all his requests. The apostle says, quote, He was heard in that he feared in all that he feared. He obtained strength and help from God, all that he needed, and was carried through. He was enabled to do and to suffer the whole will of God, and he obtained the whole of the end of his sufferings, a full atonement for the sins of the whole world, and the full salvation of every one of those who were given him in the covenant of redemption, and all that glory to the name of God, which his mediation was designed to accomplish, not one jot or tittle hath failed. Herein Christ in his agony was above all others Jacob's antitype, in his wrestling with God for a blessing, which Jacob did not as a private person, but as the head of his posterity, the nation of Israel, and by which he obtained that commendation of God, quote, as a prince thou hast power with God, quote, and therein was a type of him who was the prince of princes. End of section 6